CD6 The unicorn pawed the ground. Granny's feet scraped the bridge. Got here by accident, can't get back, she said. Even there'd been one of us, it'd be charging by now. We're about halfway across the bridge. Lot of snow run off in that river, said Ridcully doubtfully. Oh, yes, said Granny. See you at the weir. And she was gone. The unicorn, which had been trying to decide between targets, was left with Ridcully. It could count up to one. It lowered its head. Ridcully had never liked horses, animals which seemed to him to have only the weakest possible grip on sanity. As the unicorn charged, he vaulted the parapet and dropped, without much aerodynamic grace, into the icy waters of the Lancre. The librarian liked the stage. He was always in the front seat on the first night of a new production at any of Ankh's theatres, his prehensile abilities allowing him to clap twice as hard as anyone else, or, if necessary, hurl peanut shells. And he was feeling let down. There were hardly any books in the castle, except for serious volumes on etiquette and animal breeding and estate management. As a rule, royalty doesn't read much. He wasn't expecting to be amazed at the entertainment. He'd peered behind the bit of sacking that was doing service as a dressing room and seen half a dozen heavily built men arguing with one another. This did not bode well for an evening of thespianic splendour, although there was always the possibility that one of them might hit another one in the face with a custard pie. The librarian, an ape of simple but firmly held tastes, considered an episode with custard pies, buckets of whitewash, and especially that bit when someone takes someone else's hat off, fills it with something oozy, and replaces it on the deadpan head while the orchestra plays to be an absolutely essential part of any theatrical performance. Since a roasted peanut is a dangerous and painful item when hurled with pinpoint accuracy, directors in Ankh Morpork had long ago taken the hint. This made some of the Grand Guignol melodramas a little unusual, but it was considered that plays like The Blood-Soaked Tragedy of the Mad Monk of Quirm, with custard pie scene, were far better than being deaf in one ear for five days. He had managed to get the three of them seats in the front row. This wasn't according to the rules of precedence, but it was amazing how everyone squeezed up to make room. He'd also found some peanuts. No one ever knew how he managed that. Ook? No, thank you, said Ponder Stibbons. They give me the wind. Ook? I like to listen to a man who likes to talk. Whoops! Sawdust and treacle. Put that in your herring and smoke it. I don't think he wants one, said Ponder. The curtain went up, or at least was pulled aside by Carter the Baker. The entertainment began. The librarian watched in deepening gloom. It was amazing. Normally he quite liked a badly acted play, provided enough confectionery stayed airborne. But these people weren't even good at bad acting. Also, no one seemed to be on the point of throwing anything. He fished a peanut out of the bag and rolled it in his fingers, while staring intently at the left ear of Taylor the other weaver and felt his hair rise. This is very noticeable on an orangutan. He glanced up at the hill behind the erratic actors and growled under his breath. Ook! Ponder nudged him. Quiet, he hissed. They're getting the hang of it. There was an echo to the voice of the one in the straw wig. What did she say? said Ponder. Ook! How did she do that? That's good make-up, that. Ponder fell silent. Suddenly the librarian felt very alone. Everyone else in the audience had their gaze fastened firmly on the turf stage. He moved a hand up and down in front of Stibbons's face. The air was wavering over the hill, and the grass on its side moved in a way that made the ape's eyes ache. Ook! Over the hill, between the little stones, it began to snow. Ook! Alone in her room, Magrat unpacked the wedding dress. And that was another thing. She ought to have been involved in the dress, at least. She was going to... would have been the one wearing it, after all. There should have been weeks of choosing the material, and fittings, and changing her mind, and changing the material, and changing the pattern, and more fittings. Although, of course, she was her own woman and didn't need that kind of thing at all. But she should have had the choice. It was white silk with a tasteful amount of lace. Magrat knew she wasn't much up on the language of dressmaking. She knew what things were. She just didn't know the names. 
all those ruches and pleats and gores and things. She held the dress against her and gave it a critical examination. There was a small mirror against the wall. After a certain amount of internal tussling, Magret gave in and tried the dress on. It wasn't as if she'd be wearing it tomorrow. If she never did try it on, she'd always wonder if it had fitted. It fitted. Or rather, it didn't fit, but in a flattering way. Whatever Verence had paid, it had been worth it. The dressmaker had done cunning things with the material, so that it went in where Magrat went straight up and down, and billowed out where Magrat didn't. The veil had silk flowers on the headband. I'm not going to start crying again, Magrat told herself. I'm going to stay angry. I'm going to wind up the anger until it's thick enough to become rage, and when they come back, I shall... What? She could try being icy. She could sweep majestically past them. This was a good dress for that, and that'd teach them. And then what? She couldn't stay here, not with everyone knowing, and they'd find out about the letter. News went around Lancre faster than turpentine through a sick donkey. She'd have to go away. Perhaps find somewhere where there were no witches and start up again, although at the moment her feelings about witches were such that she'd prefer practically any other profession, insofar as there were other professions for an ex-witch. Magrat stuck out her chin. The way she felt now, with the bile bubbling like a hot spring, she'd create a new profession, one that with any luck didn't involve men and meddling old women. And she'd keep that damn letter just to remind her. All the time she'd wondered how Verence was able to have things arranged weeks before she got back, and it was as simple as this. How they must have laughed. It occurred briefly to Nanny Og that she really should be somewhere else, but at her time of life invitations to intimate candlelit suppers were not a daily occurrence. There had to be a time when you stopped worrying about the rest of the world and cared a little for yourself. There had to be a time for a quiet, inner moment. "'This is damn good wine,' she said, picking up another bottle. "'Would you say it's cold?' she peered at the label. "'Chateau Maison.' Shut oh that's foreign for cat's water, you know. <laughs> but that's only their way. I know it ain't real cat's water. Real cat's water is sharper. She hammered the cork into the bottle with the end of her knife, then stuck her finger over the neck and gave it a vigorous shaking to mix the goodness in. But I don't hold with drinking it out of ladies' boots, she said. I know it's supposed to be the thing to do, but I can't see what's so wonderful about walking home with your boots full of wine. <laughs> ain't you hungry? If you don't want that bit of gristle, I'll eat it. Any more of them lobsters? Never had lobster before. And that mayonnaise. And them little eggs stuffed with stuff. Mind you, that bramble jam tasted a fish to my mind. Is caviar, murmured Casanunda. He was sitting with his chin on his hand, watching her in rapt infatuation. He was, he was surprised to find, enjoying himself immensely while not horizontal. He knew how this sort of dinner was supposed to go. It was one of the basic weapons in the seducer's armoury. The amoratrix was plied with fine wines and expensive yet light dishes. There was much knowing eye contact across the table and tangling of feet underneath it. There was much pointed eating of pears and bananas and so on, and thus the ship of temptation steered gently yet inexorably to a good docking. And then there was Nanny Og. Nanny Og appreciated fine wine in her very own way. It would never have occurred to Casanunda that anyone would top up white wine with port merely because she'd reached the end of the bottle. As for the food, well, she enjoyed that too. Casanunda had never seen that elbow action before. Showed Nanny Og a good dinner and she went at it with knife, fork and rammer. Watching her eat a lobster was a particular experience he would not forget in a hurry. They'd be picking bits of claw out of the woodwork for weeks. And the asparagus. He might actually try to forget Nanny Og putting away asparagus, but he suspected the memory would come creeping back. It must be a witch thing, he told himself. They are always very clear about what they want. If you climbed cliffs and braved rivers and skied down mountains to bring a box of chocolates to Githa Og, she'd have the nougat centres out of the bottom layer even before you got your crampons off. That's it. Whatever a witch does, she does one hundred percent. Hubba, hubba. Ain't you going to eat all those prawns? 
Just push the plate this way, then. He had tried a little footsie to keep his hand in, as it were, but an accidental blow on the ankle from one of Nanny's heavy iron-nailed boots had put a stop to that. And then there had been the gypsy violinist. At first, Nanny had complained about people playing the fiddle while she was trying to concentrate on her eating. But between courses, she'd snatched it off the man, thrown the bow into a bowl of camellias, returned the instrument to something approaching a banjo, and had given Casanunda three rousing verses of what, him being foreign, she chose to call Il Porcupino Nil Sodomy Est. Then she'd drunk more wine. What also captivated Casanunda was the way Nanny Og's face became a mass of cheerful, horizontal lines when she laughed, and Nanny Og laughed a lot. In fact... Casanunda was finding out, through the faint haze of wine, that he was actually having fun. "'I take it there is no Mr. Og,' he said eventually. "'Oh, yes, there's a Mr. Og,' said Nanny. "'We buried him years ago. Well, we had to. <laughs> he was dead. "'It must be very hard for a woman leaving all alone.' "'Dreadful!' said Nanny Og, who had never prepared a meal or wielded a duster since her eldest daughter had been old enough to do it for her, and who had at least four meals cooked for her every day by various terrified daughters-in-law. "'It must be especially lonely at night,' said Casanunda, out of habit as much as anything else. "'Well, there's Grebo,' said Nanny. "'He keeps my feet warm.' "'Grebo? The cat? I say, do you think there's any pudding?' Later, she asked for a doggy bottle. Mr. Brooks, the beekeeper, ladled some greenish, foul-smelling liquid out of the saucepan that was always simmering in his secret hut, and filled his squirter. There was a wasp's nest in the garden wall. It'd be a mortuary by morning. That was the thing about bees. They always guarded the entrance to the hive with their lives, if necessary. But wasps were adept at finding the odd chink in the woodwork around the back somewhere, and the sleek little devils would be in and robbing the hive before you knew it. Funny, the bees in the hive had let them do it too. They guarded the entrance, but if a wasp found another way in, they didn't know what to do. He gave the plunger a push. A stream of liquid bubbled out and left a smoking streak on the floor. Wasps looked pretty enough, but if you were for bees, you had to be against wasps. There seemed to be some sort of party going on in the hall. He vaguely remembered getting an invitation to it, but on the whole, that sort of thing never really caught his imagination. And especially now. Things were wrong. None of the hives showed any signs of swarming. Not one. As he passed the hives in the dusk, he heard the humming. You got that on a warm night. Battalions of bees stood at the hive entrance, fanning the air with their wings to keep the brood cool. But there was also the roar of bees circling the hive. They were angry, and on guard. There was a series of small weirs just on the borders of Lancre. Granny Weatherwax hauled herself up onto the damp woodwork and squelched to the bank where she emptied her boots. After a while, a pointy wizard's hat drifted downriver and rose to reveal a pointy wizard underneath it. Granny lent a hand to help Ridcully out of the water. There, she said. Bracing, wasn't it? Seemed to me you could do with a cold bath. Ridcully tried to clean some mud out of his ear. He glared at Granny. "'Why aren't you wet?' "'I am.' "'No, you're not. You're just damp. I'm wet through. How can you float down a river and just be damp?' "'I dries out quick.' Granny Weatherwax glared up at the rocks. A short distance away the steep road ran on to Lancre, but there were other, more private ways known to her among the trees. "'So!' she said, more or less to herself. She wants to stop me going there, does she? Well, we'll see about that. Going where? said Ridcully. Ain't sure, said Granny. All I know is, if she don't want me to go there, that's where I'm going. But I hadn't bargained on you turning up and having a rush of blood to the heart. <sighs> come on. Ridcully wrung out his robe. A lot of the sequins had come off. He removed his hat and unscrewed the point. Headgear picks up morphic vibrations. Quite a lot of trouble had once been caused in Unseen University by a former Arch-Chancellor's hat, which had picked up too many magical vibrations after spending so much time on wizardly heads and had developed a personality of its very own. Ridcully had put a stop to this by having his own hat made to particular specifications by an Ankh-Morpork firm of completely insane hatters. It was not a normal wizard hat. Few wizards have ever made much use of the pointy bit, except maybe to keep the odd pair of socks in it. But Ridcully's hat had small cupboards, 
It had surprises. It had four telescopic legs and a roll of oiled silk in the brim that extended downwards to make a small but serviceable tent, and a patent spirit stove just above it. It had inner pockets with three days' supply of iron rations, and the tip unscrewed to dispense an adequate supply of spirituous liquors for use in emergencies, such as when Ridcully was thirsty. Ridcully waved the small pointed cup at Granny. Brandy, he said. What have you got on your head? Ridcully felt his pate gingerly. Um, smells like honey and horse apples to me, and what's that thing? Ridcully lifted the small cage off his head. There was a small treadmill in it, in a complex network of glass rods. A couple of feeding bowls were visible, and there was a small, hairy, and currently quite wet mouse. Oh, it's something some of the young wizards came up with, said Ridcully diffidently. I said I'd, uh, I'd, I'd try it out for them. The mouse hair rubs against the glass rods and the sparks, don't you know, and... and, and, and <clears throat> Granny Weatherwax looked at the Arch-Chancellor's somewhat grubby hair and raised an eyebrow. My word, she said, what will they think of next? Don't really understand how it works. Stibbons is the man for this sort of thing. I thought I'd help them out. Lucky you were going bald, eh? In the darkness of her sick room, Diamanda opened her eyes, if they were her eyes. There was a pearly sheen to them. The song was as yet only on the threshold of hearing, and the world was different. A small part of her mind was still Diamanda, and looked out through the mists of enchantment. The world was a pattern of fine silver lines, constantly moving, as though everything was coated with filigree. "'except where there was iron. "'There the lines were crushed and tight and bent. "'There the whole world was invisible. "'Iron distorted the world. "'Keep away from iron. "'She slipped out of bed, "'using the edge of the blanket to grasp the door-handle, "'and opened the door. "'Sean Ogg was standing very nearly to attention. "'Currently he was guarding the castle "'and seeing how long he could stand on one leg.' Then it occurred to him that this wasn't a proper activity for a martial artist, and he turned it into number 19, the flying chrysanthemum double drop kick. After a while he realised that he'd been hearing something. It was vaguely rhythmical and put him in mind of a grasshopper chirruping. It was coming from inside the castle. He turned carefully, keeping alert in case the massed armies of foreign parts tried to invade while his back was turned. This needed working out. He wasn't on guard from things inside the castle, was he? On guard meant things outside. That was the point of castles. That's why you had all the walls and things. He'd got the big poster they gave away free with Jane's all-the-world siege weapons. He knew what he was talking about. Sean was not the quickest of thinkers, but his thoughts turned inexorably to the elf in the dungeon. But that was locked up. He'd locked the door himself, and there was iron all over the place and Mum had been very definite about the iron. Nevertheless, he was methodical about it. He raised the drawbridge and dropped the portcullis and peered over the wall for good measure, but there was just the dusk and the night breeze. He could feel the sound now. It seemed to be coming out of the stone and had a saw-toothed edge to it that grated on his nerves. It couldn't have got out, could it? No, it stood to reason. People hadn't gone around building dungeons you could get out of. The sound swung back and forth across the scale. Sean leaned his rusty pike against the wall and drew his sword. He knew how to use it. He practised for ten minutes every day, and it was one sorry hanging sack of straw when he'd finished with it. He slipped into the keep by the back door and sidled along the passages towards the dungeon. There was no one else around. Of course... Everyone was at the entertainment, and they'd be back any time now, carousing all over the place. The castle felt big and old and cold. Any time now. Bound to. The noise stopped. Sean peered around the corner. There were the steps. There was the open doorway to the dungeons. Stop! shouted Sean, just in case. The sound echoed off the stones. Stop! Or, or, uh, or stop! He eased his way down the steps and looked through the archway. I warn you, I'm learning the path of the happy jade lotus. There was the door to the cell, standing ajar, and a white-clad figure next to it, 
Sean blinked. Ain't you Miss Tockley? She smiled at him. Her eyes glowed in the dim light. You're wearing chainmail, Sean, she said. What, miss? He glanced at the open door again. That's terrible. You must take it off, Sean. How can you hear with all that stuff around your ears? Sean was aware of the empty space behind him, but he didn't look round. I can hear fine, miss, he said, trying to ease himself around so that his back was against a wall. But you can't hear truly, said Diamanda, drifting forward. The iron makes you deaf. Sean was not yet used to thinly clad young women approaching him with a dreamy look on their faces. He fervently wished he could take the path of the retreating back. He glanced sideways. There was a tall, skinny shape outlined in the open cell doorway. It was standing very carefully as if it wanted to keep as far away from its surroundings as possible. Diamanda was smiling at him in a funny way. He ran. Somehow, the woods had changed. Ridcully was certain that in his youth they'd been full of bluebells and primroses and, and, and bluebells and what not and so on. Not bloody great briars all over the place. They snagged at his robe, and once or twice some tree-climbing equivalent knocked his hat off. What made it worse was that Esme Weatherwax seemed to avoid all of them. "'How do you manage that?' "'I just know where I am all the time,' said Granny. "'Well, well, I know where I am, too.' "'No, you don't. You just happen to be present. That's not the same.' "'Well, do you happen to know where a, a, a proper path is?' "'This is a shortcut. "'Between two places where you're not lost, do you mean?' "'I keep telling you I ain't lost.' I'm directionally challenged. <laughs> but it was a fact about Esme Weatherwax, he had to admit. She might be lost, and he had reason to suspect that this was the case now, unless there were in this forest two trees with exactly the same arrangements of branches and a strip of his robe caught on one of them. But she did have a quality that in anyone not wearing a battered pointy hat and an antique black dress might have been called poise. Absolute poise. It would be hard to imagine her making an awkward movement unless she wanted to. He'd seen that years ago, although, of course, at the time he'd just been amazed at the way her shape fitted perfectly into the space around it, and he'd got caught up again. Wait a minute! Entirely the wrong sort of clothes for the country. I wasn't expecting to hike through the woods. This is ceremonial damn costume. Take it off, then. Then how will anyone know I'm a wizard? I'll be sure to tell them. Granny Weatherwax was getting rattled. She was also, despite everything that she said, getting lost. But the point was that you couldn't get lost between the weir at the bottom of the Lankra Rapids and Lankra Town itself. It was uphill all the way. Besides, she'd walked through the local forests all her life. They were her forests. She was pretty sure they'd passed the same tree twice. There was a bit of Ridcully's robe hanging on it. It was like getting lost in her own garden. She was also sure she'd seen the unicorn a couple of times. It was tracking them. she tried to get into its mind. She might as well have tried to climb an ice wall. It wasn't as if her own mind was tranquil, but now at least she knew she was sane. When the walls between the universes are thin, when the parallel strands of if bunch together to pass through the now, then certain things leak across. Tiny signals, perhaps, but audible to a receiver skilled enough. In her head were the faint, insistent thoughts of a thousand Esme weatherwaxes. Magrat wasn't sure what to pack. Most of her original clothes seemed to have evaporated since she'd been in the castle, and it was hardly good manners to take the ones Verence had bought for her. The same applied to the engagement ring. She wasn't sure if you were allowed to keep it. She glared at herself in the mirror. She'd have to stop thinking like this. She seemed to have spent her whole life trying to make herself small, trying to be polite, apologising when people walked over her, trying to be good-mannered. And what had happened? People had treated her as if she was small and polite and good-mannered. She'd stick the, the damn letter on the mirror so they'd all know why she'd gone. She'd a damn good mind to go off to one of the cities and become a courtesan, whatever that was. And then she heard the singing... It was, without doubt, the most beautiful sound Magrat had ever heard. It flowed straight through the ears and into the hindbrain, into the blood, into the bone. 
A silk camisole dropped from her fingers onto the floor. She wrenched at the door, and a tiny part of her mind, still capable of rational thought, remembered about the key. The song filled the passageway. She gripped some folds of the wedding dress to make running easier, and hurried towards the stairs. Something bulleted out of another doorway and bore her to the floor. It was Sean Ogg. Through the chromatic haze she could see his worried face peering out from its hood of rusty iron. The song changed while staying the same. The complex harmonies, the fascinating rhythm, did not alter, but suddenly grated as if she was hearing the song through different ears. She was dragged into the doorway. "'Are you all right, Miss Queen?' "'What's happening?' "'Dunno, Miss Queen, but I think we've got elves.' "'Elves? And they've got Miss Tockley. Uh, "'You know, you took the iron away.' "'What are you talking about, Sean?' "'Sean's face was white. "'That one down the dungeon started singing, "'and they put the mark on her, so she's doing what they want. "'Sean, and Mum says they don't kill you if they can help it. "'Not right away. You're much more fun if you're not dead.' Magrat stared at him. "'I had to run away. She was trying to get me hood off. "'I had to leave her, miss. You understand, miss?' "'Elves? You got to hold on to something iron, miss. They hate iron.' "'She slapped his face, hurting her fingers on the mail. "'You're gabbling, Sean. They're out there, miss. I the drawbridge go down. "'They're out there and we're in here and they don't kill you. They keep you alive.' "'Stand to attention, soldier.' It was all she could think of. It seemed to work. Sean pulled himself together. "'Look,' said Magrat, "'everyone knows there really aren't any elves any more.' Her voice faded. Her eyes narrowed. "'Everyone but Magrat Garlic knows different, yes?' Sean shook. Magrat grabbed his shoulders. "'Me mum and Mistress Weatherwax said you wasn't to know,' Sean wailed. "'They said it was witch business.' "'And where are they now, when they've got some witch business to mind?' said Magrat. "'I don't see them, do you? Are they behind the door? No. Are they under the bed? How strange, they're not. There's just me, Sean Ogg. And if you don't tell me everything you know right now, I'll make you regret the day I was born.' Sean's Adam's apple bobbed up and down as he considered this. Then he shook himself free of Magrat's grasp and listened at the door. The singing had stopped. For a moment, Magrat thought she heard footsteps outside the door hurrying away. "'Well, Miss Queen, our mum and Mistress Weatherwax was up at the dances,' Magret listened. Finally, she said, "'And where's everyone now?' "'Dunno, Miss. All gone to the entertainment. But they ought to have been back by now.' "'Where's the entertainment?' "'Dunno, Miss. Miss?' "'Yes?' "'Why have you got your wedding dress on?' "'Never you mind.' "'It's unlucky for the groom to see the bride in her dress before the wedding,' said Sean, taking refuge in run-of-the-mill idiocies to relieve his terror. "'It will be for him if I see him first, snarled Magrat. "'Miss?' "'Yes?' "'I'm feared about what's happened to everyone. "'Our Jason said they'd be back in an hour or so, and that was hours ago.' "'But there's almost a hundred guests and everyone from the town, practically. "'Elves couldn't do anything to them.' "'They wouldn't have to, miss.' "'Sean went to the unglazed window. "'Look, miss, I can drop down onto the granary in the stable yard from here. "'It's thatch. I'll be all right. "'Then I can sneak round the kitchens and out by the little gate by the Hubwood Tower with military precision.' "'What for?' "'To get help, miss.' "'But you don't know if there's any help to get.' "'Can you think of anything else, miss?' "'She couldn't. "'It's very brave of you, Sean,' said Magrat. "'You stay here and you'll be right as rain,' said Sean. "'Tell you what, how about if I lock the door and take the key with me? "'Then even if they sing at you, they can't get you to open the door.' Magrat nodded. Sean tried to smile. "'Wish we had another suit of mail,' he said. "'But it's all in the armoury.' "'I'll be fine,' said Magrat. "'Off you go, then.' Sean nodded. He waited for a moment on the window ledge and then dropped into the darkness. Magrat pushed the bed against the door and sat on it. It occurred to her that she should have gone as well, but that would mean leaving the castle empty, and that didn't feel right. Besides, she was scared. There was one candle in the room, and that was half burned down. When it was gone, there'd be nothing but moonlight. Magrat had always liked moonlight, up to now. It was quiet outside. There should be the noises of the town. It crept over her that letting Sean go away with the key to the door was not a wholly sensible thing because if they caught him, they could open it. There was a scream which went on for a long time, and then the night rolled back in again. After a few minutes there was a scrabbling at the lock, such as might be made by someone trying to manipulate a key held in several thicknesses of cloth, 
so as not to come in contact with the iron. The door began to open and wedged up against the bed. Will you not step outside, lady? The door creaked again. Will you not come dance with us, pretty lady? The voice had strange harmonics, and an echo that buzzed around the inside of the head for several seconds after the last word had been spoken. The door burst open. Three figures slid into the room. One looked up the bed, and the others poked into the dark corners. Then one of them crossed to the window and looked out. The crumbling walls stretched down to the thatched roof entirely unoccupied. The figure nodded to two more shapes in the courtyard, its blonde hair glowing in the moonlight. One of them pointed up to where a figure, its long white dress billowing in the breeze, was climbing up the wall of the keep. The elf laughed. This was going to be more enjoyable than it had suspected. Magrat pulled herself over the windowsill and collapsed, panting on the floor. Then she staggered across to the door, which was missing its key. But there were two heavy wooden bars which she slotted into place. There was a wooden shutter for the window. They'd never let her get away with it again. She'd been expecting an arrow, but no, something as simple as that wouldn't have been enough fun. She glared at the darkness. So, there was this room. She didn't even know which one it was. She found a candlestick in a bundle of matches, and after some scrabbling got it lit. There were some boxes and cases piled by the bed. So, a guest room. The thoughts trickled through the silence of her brain, one after the other. She wondered if they'd sing to her and if she could stand it again. Maybe if you knew what to expect. There was a gentle tap at the door. We have your friends downstairs, lady. Come, dance with me. Magrat stared desperately around the room. It was as featureless as guest bedrooms everywhere. Jug and basin on a stand, the horrible garderobe alcove inadequately concealed behind a curtain, the bed which had a few bags and bundles tossed on it, a battered chair with all the varnish gone, and a small square of carpet made grey with age and ground in dust. The door rattled. Let me in, sweet lady. The window was no escape this time. There was the bed to hide under, and that'd work for all of two seconds, wouldn't it? Her eye was drawn by some kind of horrible magic back to the room's garderobe, lurking behind its curtain. Magrat lifted the lid. The shaft was definitely wide enough to admit a body. Garderobes were notorious in that respect. Several unpopular kings had met their end, as it were, in the garderobe, at the hands of an assassin with good climbing ability, a spear, and a fundamental approach to politics. Something hit the door hard. Lady, shall I sing to you? Magrat reached a decision. It was the hinges that gave way eventually, the rusty bolts finally losing their grip on the stone. The alcove's half-drawn curtain moved in the breeze. The elf smiled, strode up to the curtain, and pulled it aside. The oak lid was up. The elf looked down. Magrat rose up behind it like a white ghost and hit it hard across the back of the neck with the chair, which shattered. The elf tried to turn and keep its balance, but there was still enough chair left in Magrat's hands for her to catch it on the desperate upswing. It toppled backwards, flailed at the lid, and only succeeded in pulling it shut behind it. Magrat heard a thump and a scream of rage as it dropped into the noisome darkness. It'd be too much to hope that the fall would kill it. After all, it had landed something soft. Not just high, said Magrat to herself, but stinking. Hiding under the bed is only good for about two seconds, but sometimes two seconds is enough. She let go of the chair. She was shaking, but she was still alive, and that felt good. That's the thing about being alive. You're alive to enjoy it. Magrat peered out into the passage. She had to move. She picked up a stricken chair leg for the little comfort that it gave, and ventured out. There was a scream again from the direction of the great hall. Magrat looked the other way towards the long gallery. She ran. There had to be a way out somewhere, some gate, some window. Some enterprising monarch had glazed the windows some time ago. The moonlight shone through in big silver blocks interspersed with squares of deep shadow. Magrat ran from light to shade, light to shade, down the endless room. Monarch after monarch flashed past like a speeded-up film. King after king, all whiskers and crowns and beards. Queen after queen, all corsages and stiff bodices, and lappet-faced wow-hawks, and small dogs, and... Some shape, some trick of moonlight, 
Some expression on a painted face somehow cut through her terror and caught her eye. That was a portrait she'd never seen before. She'd never walked down this far. The idiot vapidity of the assembled queens had depressed her, but this one... this one somehow reached out to her. She stopped. It couldn't have been done from life. In the days of this queen, the only paint known locally was a sort of blue, and generally used on the body. But a few generations ago, King Lully I had been a bit of a historian and a romantic. He'd researched what was known of the early days of L'Ancre, and where actual evidence had been a bit sparse, he had, in the best traditions of the keen ethnic historian, inferred from revealed self-evident wisdom, made it up, and extrapolated from associated sources, had read a lot of stuff that other people had made up too. He'd commissioned the portrait of Queen Nchi, the short-tempered, one of the founders of the kingdom. She had a helmet with wings and a spike on it, and a mass of black hair plaited into dreadlocks with blood as a setting lotion. She was heavily made up in the woad and blood and spiral school of barbarian cosmetics. She had a 42D cup breastplate and shoulder pads with spikes. She had knee pads with spikes on and spikes on her sandals, and a rather short skirt in the fashionable tartan and blood motif. One hand rested nonchalantly on a double-headed battle-axe with a spike on it, the other caressed the hand of a captured enemy warrior. The rest of the captured enemy warrior was hanging from various pine trees in the background. Also in the picture was Spike, her favourite war pony, of the now extinct Lancre Hill breed, which was the same general shape and disposition as a barrel of gunpowder, and her war chariot, which picked up the popular spiky theme. It had wheels you could shave with. Magrat stared. They'd never mentioned this. They told her about tapestries, and embroidery, and farthingales, and how to shake hands with lords. They'd never told her about spikes. There was a sound at the end of the gallery, from back the way she'd come. She grabbed her skirts and ran. There were footsteps behind her, and laughter. Left down the cloisters, then along the dark passage above the kitchens, and past the... A shape moved in the shadows, teeth flashed. Magrat raised the chair leg and stopped in mid-strike. Grebo? Nanny Og's cat rubbed against her legs. His hair was flat against his body. This unnerved Magrat even more. This was Grebo, undisputed king of Lancre's cat population, and father of most of it, in whose presence wolves trod softly and bears climbed trees. He was frightened. Come here, you bloody idiot. She grabbed him by the scruff of his scarred neck and ran on while Grebo gratefully sank his claws into her arm to the bone and scrambled up to her shoulder. He's just an old soppy, really, from the Nanny Og book of cat sayings. She must be somewhere near the kitchen now, because that was Grebo's territory. This was an unknown and shadowy area, terra incognita, where the flesh of carpets and the plaster pillars ran out and the stone bone of the castle showed through. She was sure there were footsteps behind her, very fast and light. If she hurried around the next corner... In her arms, Grebo tensed like a spring. Magrat stopped, around the next corner. Without her apparently willing it, the hand holding the broken wood came up, moving slowly back. She stepped to the corner and stabbed in one movement. There was a triumphant hiss, which turned into a screech as the wood scraped down the side of the waiting elf's neck. It reeled away... Magret bolted for the nearest doorway, weeping in panic, and wrenched at the handle. It swung open. She darted through, slammed the door, flailed in the dark for the bars, felt them clonk home, and collapsed onto her knees. Something hit the door outside. After a while, Magret opened her eyes, and then wondered if she had really opened her eyes, because the darkness was no less dark. There was a feeling of space in front of her. There were all sorts of things in the castle, old hidden rooms, anything. There could be a pit there. There could be anything. She fumbled for the doorframe, guided herself upright, and then groped cautiously in the general direction of the wall. There was a shelf. This was a candle, and this was a bundle of matches. So, she insisted above her own heartbeat, this was a room that got used recently. Most people in Lancre still used tinderboxes. Only the king could afford matches all the way from Ankh-Morpork. Granny Weatherwax and Nanny Og got them too, but they didn't buy them, they got given them. It was easy to get given things if you were a witch. Magrat lit the stub of candle and turned to see what kind of room she'd scuttled into. 
Oh, no. Well, well, said Ridcully, there's a familiar tree. Shut up. I thought someone said we just had to walk uphill, said Ridcully. Shut up. I remember once when we were in these woods, you let me shut up. Granny Weatherwax sat down on a stump. We are being mazed, she said. Someone's playing tricks on us. I remember a story once, said Ridcully, where these two children were lost in the woods, and a lot of birds came and covered them with leaves. Hope showed in his voice like a toe peeking out from under a crinoline. Yes, that's just the sort of bloody stupid thing a bird would think of, said Granny. She rubbed her head. She's doing it, she said. It's an elvish trick, leading travellers astray. She's mucking up my head, my actual head. Oh, she's good. Making us go where she wants, making us go round in circles, doing it to me. Maybe you've got your mind on other things, said Ridcully, not quite giving up hope. Course I've got my mind on other things, with you falling over all the time and gabbling a lot of nonsense, said Granny. If Mr Clever Dick Wizard hadn't wanted to dredge up things that never existed in the first place, I wouldn't be here. I'd be in the centre of things, knowing what's going on. She clenched her fists. Well, you don't have to be, said Ridcully. It's a fine night. We could sit here and... You're falling for it too, said Granny. All that dreamy, weemy, eyes across a crowded room stuff. Can't imagine how you keep your job as head wizard. Mainly by checking my bed carefully and making sure someone else has already had a slice of whatever it is I'm eating, said Ridcully, with disarming honesty. There's not much to it, really. Mainly it's signing things and having a good shout. Ridcully gave up. Anyway, you looked pretty surprised when you saw me, he said. Your face went white. Anyone'd go white seeing a full-grown man standing there looking like a sheep about to choke, said Granny. You you really don't let up, do you? said Ridcully. Amazing. You don't give an inch. Another leaf drifted past. Ridcully didn't move his head. You know, he said, his voice staying quite level, either autumn comes really early in these parts, or the birds here are the ones out of that story I mentioned, or someone's in the tree above us. I know. You know? Yes, because I've been paying attention while you were dodging the traffic in memory lane, said Granny. There's at least five of them, and they're right above us. How's those magic fingers of yours? I could... Probably manage a fireball. Wouldn't work. Can you carry us out of here? Not both of us. Just you? Probably, but I'm not going to leave you. Granny rolled her eyes. <sighs> it's true, you know, she said. All men are swains. Push off, you soft old bugger. They're not intending to kill me, at least not yet. But they don't hardly know nothing about wizards and they'll chop you down without thinking. Now who's being soft? I don't want to see you dead when you could be doing something useful. Running away isn't useful. It's going to be a lot more useful than staying here. Well, I'd, I'd never forgive myself if I went. And I'd never forgive you if you stayed. And I'm a lot more unforgiving than you are, said Granny. When it's all over, try to find Githa Og. Tell her to look in my old box. She'll know what's in there. And if you don't go now... An arrow hit the stump beside Ridcully. Buggers are, are firing at me, he shouted. If I had my crossbow... I should go and get it then, said Granny. Uh, right, I, I'll be back, instantly. Ridcully vanished. A moment later, several lumps of castle masonry dropped out of the space he had just occupied. That's him out of the way then, said Granny to no one in particular. She stood up and gazed around at the trees. All right, she said, here I am. I ain't running. Come and get me. Here I am. All of me. Magrat calmed down. Of course it existed. Every castle had one. And of course this one was used. There was a trodden path through the dust to the rack a few feet away from the door, where a few suits of unravelling chainmail hung on a rack next to the pikes. Sean probably came in here every day. It was the armoury. Grebo hopped down from Magrat's shoulders and wandered off down the cobwebbed avenues in his endless search for anything small and squeaky. 
Magrat followed him in a daze. The kings of Lancre had never thrown anything away. At least, they'd never thrown anything away if it was possible to kill someone with it. There was armour for men. There was armour for horses. There was armour for fighting dogs. There was even armour for ravens, although King Gurnt, the stupid's plan for an aerial attack force, had never really got off the ground. There were more pikes and swords, cutlasses, rapiers, epées, broadswords, flails, morning stars, maces, clubs, and huge knobs with spikes. They were all piled together, and in those places where the roof had leaked were rusted into a lump. There were longbows, shortbows, pistolbows, stirrupbows and crossbows, piled like firewood and stacked with the same lack of care. Odd bits of armour were piled in more heaps, and were red with rust. In fact, rust was everywhere. The whole huge room was full of the death of iron. Magret went on like some clockwork toy that won't change direction until it bumps into something. The candlelight was reflected dully in helmets and breastplates. The sets of horse armour in particular were terrible. On their rotting wooden frames, they stood like exterior skeletons, and like skeletons nudged the mind into thoughts of mortality. Empty eye sockets stared sightlessly down at the little candlelit figure. Lady! The voice came from outside the door, far behind Magrat, but it echoed around her, bouncing off the centuries of mouldering armaments. They can't come in here, Magrat thought. Too much iron. In here I'm safe. If Lady wants to play, we will fetch her friends. As Magrat turned, the light caught the edge of something and gleamed. Magrat pulled aside a huge shield. Lady, Magrat reached out. Lady. Magrat's hands held a rusty iron helmet with wings. Come, dance at the wedding, lady. Magrat's hands closed on a well-endowed breastplate with spikes. Grebo, who had been tracking mice through a prone suit of armour, stuck his head out of a leg. A change had come over Magrat. It showed in her breathing. She'd been panting with fear and exhaustion. Then, for a few seconds, there was no sound of her breathing at all. And finally, it returned, slowly, deeply, deliberately. Grebo saw Magrat, who he'd always put down as basically a kind of mouse in human shape, lift the hat with the wings on it and put it on her head. Magrat knew all about the power of hats. In her mind's ear, she could hear the rattle of the chariots. Lady, we will bring your friends to sing to you. She turned. The candlelight sparkled off her eyes. Grebo drew back into the safety of his armour. He recalled a particular time when he'd leapt out on a vixen. Normally, Grebo could take on a fox without raising a sweat, but as it turned out, this one had cubs. He hadn't found out until he chased her into her den. He'd lost a bit of one ear and quite a lot of fur before he'd got away. The vixen had a very similar expression to the one Magrat had now. Grebo, come here. The cat turned and tried to find a place of safety in the suit's breastplate. He was beginning to doubt he'd made it through the night. Elves prowled the castle gardens. They'd killed the fish in the ornamental pond, eventually. Mr. Brooks was perched on a kitchen chair, working at a crevice in the stable wall. He'd been aware of some sort of excitement, but it was involving humans and therefore of secondary importance. But he did notice the change in the sound from the hives and the splintering of wood. A hive had already been tipped over. Angry bees clouded around three figures as feet ripped through comb and honey and brood. The laughter stopped as a white-coated, veiled figure appeared over the hedge. It raised a long metal tube. No one ever knew what Mr. Brooks put in his squirter. There was old tobacco in it, and boiled-up roots, and bark scrapings, and herbs that even Magrat had never heard of. It shot a glistening stream over the hedge, which hit the middle elf between the eyes and sprayed over the other two. Mr. Brooks watched dispassionately until their struggles stopped. Wasps, he said. Then he went and found a box, lit a lantern, and with great care and delicacy, oblivious to the stings, began to repair the damaged combs. Sean couldn't feel much in his arm any more, except in the hot, dull way that indicated at least one broken bone, and he knew that two of his fingers shouldn't be looking like that. He was sweating, despite being only in his vest and drawers. 
He should never have taken his chainmail off, but it's hard to say no when an elf is pointing a bow at you. Sean knew what, fortunately, many people didn't. Chainmail isn't much defence against an arrow. It certainly isn't when the arrow is being aimed between your eyes. He'd been dragged along the corridors to the armoury. There were at least four elves, but it was hard to see their faces. Sean remembered when the travelling magic lanthorn show had come to Lancre. He'd watched entranced as different pictures had been projected onto one of Nanny Og's bedsheets. The elf faces put him in mind of that. There were eyes and a mouth in there, somewhere, but everything else seemed to be temporary, the elves' features passing across their faces like the pictures on the screen. They didn't say much, they just laughed a lot. They were a merry folk, especially when they were twisting your arm to see how far it could go. The elves spoke to one another in their own language. Then one of them turned to Sean and indicated the armoury door. "'We wish the lady to come out,' it said. "'You must say to her, if she does not come out, "'we will play with you some more.' "'What will you do to us if she does come out?' said Sean. "'Oh, we shall still play with you.' said the elf. That's what makes it so much fun. But she must hope, must she not? Talk to her now. He was pushed up to the door. He knocked on it in what he hoped was a respectful way. Um, uh, Miss Queen? Magrat's voice was muffled. Yes? It's me, Sean. I know. I'm out here. Um, I think they've hurt Miss Tockley. Um, they say they'll hurt me some more if you don't come out, but you don't have to come out because they daren't come in there because of all the iron, so I shouldn't listen to them if I was you. There was some distant clankings and then a twang. Miss McGrath? Ask her, said the elf, if there is any food and water in there. Miss, they say... One of the elves jerked him away. Two of them took up station either side of the doorway and one put his pointed ear to it. Then it knelt down and peered through the keyhole, taking care not to come too near the metal of the lock. There was a sound no louder than a click. The elf remained motionless for a moment and then keeled over gently, without a sound. Sean blinked. There was about an inch of crossbow bolt sticking out of its eye. The feathers had been sheared off by its passage through the keyhole. "'Wow!' he said. The armoury door swung open, revealing nothing but darkness.' One of the elves started to laugh. So much for him, it said. How stupid. Lady, will you listen to your warrior? He gripped Sean's broken arm and twisted. Sean tried not to scream. Purple lights flashed in front of his eyes. He wondered what would happen if he passed out. He wished his mum were here. Lady, said the elf, if you... All right said Magrat's voice from somewhere in the darkness. I'm going to come out. You must promise not to hurt me. Oh, indeed I do, lady. And you'll let Sean go? Yes. The elves on either side of the doorway nodded at each other. Please, Magrat pleaded. Yes. Sean groaned. If it had been Mum or Mistress Weatherwax, they'd have fought to the death. Mum was right. Magrat always was the nice, soft one, who'd just fired a crossbow through a keyhole. Some eighth sense made Sean shift his weight. If the elf relaxed his grip for just one second, Sean was ready to stagger. Magrat appeared in the doorway. She was carrying an ancient wooden box with the word candles on the side in peeling paint. Sean looked hopefully along the corridor. Magrat smiled brightly at the elf beside him. "'This is for you,' she said, handing over the box. The elf took it automatically. "'But you mustn't open it. "'And remember, you promised not to hurt me.' The elves closed in behind Magrat. One of them raised a hand with a stone knife in it. "'Lady,' said the elf holding the box, which was rocking gently in its hands. "'Yes,' said Magrat meekly. "'I lied to you.' The knife plunged towards her back and shattered. The elf looked at Magrat's innocent expression and opened the box. Grebo had spent an irritating two minutes in that box. Technically, a cat locked in a box may be alive or it may be dead. You never know until you look. In fact, the mere act of opening the box will determine the state of the cat, although in this case there were three determinate states the cat could be in, these being alive, dead, and bloody furious. 
Sean dived sideways as Grebo went off like a claymore mine. Don't worry about him, said Magrat dreamily as the elf flailed at the maddened cat. He's just a big softy. She drew a knife out of the folds of her dress, turned and stabbed the elf behind her. It wasn't an accurate thrust, but it didn't have to be. Not with an iron blade. She completed the movement by daintily raising the hem of her dress and kicking the third elf just under the knee. Sean saw a flash of metal as her foot retreated under the silk again. She elbowed the screaming elf aside, trotted into the doorway, and came back with a crossbow. Sean, she said, which one hurt you? All of them, said Sean weakly, but the one fighting Grebo stabbed Diamanda. The elf pulled Grebo off his face. Green-blue blood was streaming from a dozen wounds, and Grebo hung on to its arm as he was flailed against the wall. Stop it, said Magrat. The elf looked down at the bow and froze. I will not beg for mercy, it said. Good, said Magrat, and fired. That left one elf rolling in circles on the flagstones, clutching at its knee. Magrat stepped daintily over the body of another elf, vanished into the armoury for a moment and came back with an axe. The elf stopped moving and focused all its attention on her. Now, said Magrat conversationally, I'm not going to lie to you about your chances because you haven't got any. I'm going to ask you some questions, but first of all, I'm going to get your attention. The elf was expecting it and managed to roll aside as the axe splintered the stones. Miss, said Sean weakly as Magrat raised the axe again. Yes? Mum says they don't feel pain, miss. No? "'But they can certainly be put to inconvenience.' "'Magrat lowered the axe. "'Of course there's armour,' she said. "'We could put this one in a suit of armour. "'How about it?' "'No.' "'The elf tried to pull away across the floor. "'Why not?' said Magrat. "'Better than axes, yes?' "'No.' "'Why not?' "'It's like being buried in the earth,' hissed the elf. "'No eyes, no ears, no mouth.' "'Chainmail, then,' said Magrat. "'No.' "'Where is the king? Where is everyone?' "'I will not say.' "'All right.' "'Magret vanished into the armoury again "'and came back dragging a suit of chain-mail. "'The elf tried to scramble away. "'You won't get it on,' said Sean from where he lay. "'You'll never get it over his arms.' "'Magret picked up the axe. "'Oh, no,' said Sean. "'Miss!' "'You will never get him back,' said the elf. "'She has him.' "'We shall see,' said Magrat. "'All right, Sean. What shall we do with it?' In the end, they dragged it into the storeroom next to the dungeon and manacled it to the bars of the window. It was still whimpering at the touch of the iron as Magrat slammed the door. Sean was trying to keep at a respectful distance. It was the way Magrat kept smiling all the time. "'Now let's have a look at that arm of yours,' she said. "'I'm all right,' said Sean. "'But they stabbed Diamander in the kitchen.' "'Was it her I heard screaming?' "'Um, partly. Um, "'Sean stared down in fascination at the dead elves as Magrat stepped over them. "'You killed them,' he said. "'Did I do it wrong?' "'Um, no,' said Sean cautiously. "'No, you did it quite well, really.' "'And there's one in the pit,' said Magrat. "'You know, the pit. "'What day is it?' "'Tuesday.' "'And you clean it out on—' "'Wednesdays. Only I missed last Wednesday because I had, uh... "'Then we probably don't need to worry about it. "'Are there any more around?' "'I don't think so. Um, Miss Queen?' "'Yes, Sean. "'Could you put the axe down, please? "'I feel a lot better if you put the axe down. "'The axe, Miss Queen. "'You keep swinging it about. "'It could go off at any second. "'What axe?' "'The one you're holding.' "'Oh, this axe!' Magrat appeared to notice it for the first time. "'That arm looks bad. Let's get down to the kitchen and I'll splint it. Those fingers don't look good either. "'Did they kill the Amanda?' "'I don't know, and I don't know why. I mean, she was helping them.' "'Yes. Wait a moment.' Magrat disappeared one more time into the armoury and came back carrying a sack. "'Come on, Grebo.' Grebo gave her a sly look and stopped washing himself. "'Do you know a funny thing about Lancre?' said Magrat as they sidled down the stairs. "'What's that, miss?' "'We never throw anything away. And do you know another thing?' "'No, miss.' "'They couldn't have painted her from life, of course, I mean. People didn't paint portraits in those days. But the armour! <laughs> All they had to do was look. And you know what? 
Sean suddenly felt frightened. He'd been scared before, but it had been immediate and physical. But Magrat, like this, frightened him more than the elves. It was like being charged by a sheep. No, miss, he said. No one told me about her. You'd think it's all tapestry and walking around in long dresses. What, miss? Magrat waved an arm expressively. All this! Miss, said Sean from knee level. Magrat looked down. What? Please put the axe down. Oh, sorry. Hodges Arg spent his nights in a little shed adjoining the mews. He too had received an invitation to the wedding, but it had been snatched from his hand and eaten in mistake for one of his fingers by Lady Jane, an ancient and evil-tempered gear falcon. So he'd gone through his usual nightly routine, bathing his wounds, and eating a meal of stale bread and ancient cheese, and going to bed early to bleed gently by candlelight over a copy of Beaks and Talons. He looked up at the sound from the mews, picked up the candlestick and wandered out. An elf was looking at the birds. It had Lady Jane perched on its arm. Hodges Ag, like Mr Brooks, didn't take much interest in events beyond his immediate passion. He was aware that there were a lot of visitors in the castle, and as far as he was concerned, anyone looking at the hawks was a fellow enthusiast. "'That's my best bird,' he said proudly. "'I've nearly got her trained. "'She's very good. I'm training her. "'She's very intelligent. "'She knows eleven words of command.' "'The elf nodded solemnly. "'Then it slipped the hood off the bird's head "'and nodded towards Hodges' arg. "'Kill,' it commanded. "'Lady Jane's eyes glittered in the torchlight. "'Then she leapt and hit the elf full in the throat "'with two sets of talons and a beak.' <laughs> she does that with me, too, said Hodges Arg. Sorry about that. She's very intelligent. Diamanda was lying on the kitchen floor in a pool of blood. Magrat knelt beside her. She's still alive, just. She grabbed the hem of her dress and tried to rip it. Damn thing. Help me, Sean. Miss? We need bandages. But, uh, oh, stop gawping. The skirt tore. A dozen lace roses unravelled. Sean had never been privy to what queens wore under their clothes, but even starting with certain observations concerning Millie Chillum and working his way up, he'd never considered metal underwear. Magrat thumped the breastplate. Fairly good fit, she said, defying Sean to point out that in certain areas there was quite a lot of air between the metal and Magrat. Not that a few tucks and a rivet here and there wouldn't help. Don't you think he looks good? Oh, yes, said Sean. Eh... "'Sheet iron is really you.' "'You really think so?' "'Oh, yes,' said Jean, inventing madly. "'You've got the figure for it.' She sat and splinted his arm and fingers, working methodically using strips of silk as bandages. Diamanda was less easy. Magrat cleaned and stitched and bandaged, while Sean sat and watched, trying to ignore the insistent hot ice pain from his arm. He kept repeating, "'They just laughed and, and stabbed her.' She didn't even try to run away. It was like they were playing. For some reason, Magrat shot a glance at Grebo, who had the decency to look embarrassed. Pointy ears and hair you want to stroke, she said vaguely, and they can fascinate you, and when they're happy, they make a pleasing noise. What? Just thinking to myself, Magrat stood up. OK, I'll build up the fire and fetch a couple of crossbows and load them up for you. And you keep the door shut and let no one in, do you hear? And if I don't come back, try and go somewhere where there's people. Get up to the dwarfs at Copperhead or the trolls. What are you going to do? I'm going to see what's happened to everyone. Magrat opened the sack she'd brought down from the armory. There was a helmet in it. It had wings on, and to Sean's mind was quite impractical. He knew this because the previous month's issue of Popular Armour had run a feature entitled We Test the Top 20 Sub-$50 Helmets. It had also run a second feature called Battle Axes. We put the ten best through their paces and had advertised for half a dozen new testers. There were also a pair of male gloves and a choice assortment of rusty weaponry. But there's probably more of those things out there. Better out there than in here. Can you fight? Don't know. Never tried, said Magrat. But if we wait here, someone's bound to come. Yes, I'm afraid they will. What I mean is... You don't have to do this. Yes, I do. I'm getting married tomorrow. One way or the other. But, uh, shut up. She's going to get killed, Sean thought. It's not enough to be able to pick up a sword. You have to know which end to poke into the enemy. I'm supposed to be on guard. 
and she's going to get killed. But, but, she shot one of them in the eye right through the keyhole. I couldn't have done that. I'd have said something like, hands up, first. But they were in the way, and she just got them out of her way. She's still going to die. She's just probably going to die bravely. I wish my mum was here. Magrat finished rolling up the stained remnant of the wedding dress and stowed it in the sack. Have we got any horses? There's uh, elf horses in the courtyard, miss, but I don't think you'll be able to ride one. It struck Sean immediately that this wasn't the right thing to say. It was black and larger than what Magrat had to think of as a human horse. It rolled red eyes at her and tried to get into a position to kick. Magrat managed to mount only by practically tethering every leg to the rings in the stable wall. But when she was on, the horse changed. It had the docility of the severely whipped and seemed to have no mind of its own. "'It's the iron,' said Sean. "'What does it do to them? It can't hurt.' "'Don't know, miss. Seems they just freeze up kind of thing. "'Drop the portcullis after I'm through. "'Miss!' "'Are you going to tell me not to go? "'But shut up, then.' "'But!' "'I remember a folk song about a situation just like this,' said Magrat. "'The girl had her fiancé stolen by the Queen of the Elves, "'and she didn't hang around whining. "'She jolly well got on her horse and went and rescued him. "'Well, I'm going to do that, too.' "'Sean tried to grin. "'Well, you're going to sing?' he said. "'I'm going to fight. "'I've got everything to fight for, haven't I? "'And I've tried everything else.' "'Sean wanted to say, but that's not the same.' Going and fighting when you're a real person isn't like folk songs. In real life, you die. In folk songs, you just have to remember to keep one finger in your ear and how to go to the next chorus. In real life, no one goes, whack fo diddle do ding do sing do to rely lay But he said, But, miss, if you don't come back... Magrat turned in the saddle. I'll be back. Sean watched her urge the sluggish horse into a trot and disappear over the drawbridge. Good luck! he shouted. Then he lowered the portcullis and went back into the keep, where there were three loaded crossbows on the kitchen table. There was also the book on martial arts that the king had sent for specially. He pumped up the fire, turned a chair to face the door, and turned to the advanced section. End of CD 6